Listener Production. Tom Boyd was just 18 years old when he was named the number one AFL draft pick of 2013. After briefly playing for Greater Western Sydney, he moved back to Melbourne to join the Western Bulldogs. The teenager's contract was worth a record-breaking $7 million. From the club's perspective, he was well worth the investment. Tom Boyd was instrumental in the Bulldogs' premiership of 2016, the team's first in 62 years. But three years after that, aged just 23, Tom made the decision to retire from footy. Shocking fans, commentators and everyone who had predicted a long and glittering career. The reason? The pressure and scrutiny that had come with Tom's success. It had created a cycle of severe insomnia, depression and anxiety. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Bron is jumping into the studio shortly and we will bring you The Weekend List and recommend what to watch, see, do, read and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Tom Boyd. And just a heads up that our chat does delve into mental illness and treatment. So if you're not in the right headspace to listen to that today, then go back to the feed and check out another great briefing episode. Tom Boyd, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure and it is so lovely to finally meet you. I've had the delight the last week or two diving into all things about your life. So I'm coming to this at the advantage, knowing more about you than you do about me. But for our audience who perhaps aren't tragic footy fans, who I'm sure are well-versed on you, tell me a little bit about you as a teenager and working towards the AFL draft. Yeah, it's a great question. Some years ago now, I've just turned 27, so I'll have to think back um, about a decade you to get back. That, you say that like you're really <laughs> old. <laughs> I feel like I've uh, crammed many things into my young life and perhaps that makes me feel a little bit older than I actually am. Sure. But um, I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. I uh, spent most of my childhood, like many of us do, really focusing on sport. And, and the two that I spent the predominant amount of my time in was basketball and football. And by the age of um, 15, I was playing uh, state basketball and state football and was lucky enough to be the captain of the state football side. And um, I think that really stemmed from, you know, a deep love of sport and a passion for sport, but also, you know, the inherent advantage of being quite tall. Um, I actually grew 27 centimetres in my first year of school to Whoa. really outshine my year five buddy, much to his dismay. Um, and that certainly helped me uh, get a get a distinct advantage over the years. And you know, within my family, education was always a really significant component. It was um, reiterated and iterated and iterated that it was the number one priority for me, though that conversation shifted a little bit as I looked like I was going to get drafted. Yeah. But what I found was over the last two years of my schooling was that as my sport continued to ramp up, as I sort of proceeded towards being pick one in the 2013 national draft, that I found a really distinct solace within my schooling as opposed to um, previously where I would have found that sort of reprieve from school within my sport. And I think in part, you know, to your comment about having a little bit more insight into me than perhaps I do into you, was that with my football, it always felt like the people that I was meeting were treating me a certain way based on my footballing exploits. Mm. Whereas at school, I was poked fun of, I was, you know, set up against my friends uh, in terms of our performance in academia and often I would lose, um, which wasn't so much the case in the football field at that time. Um, and I just felt like I was more normal and I was treated as a normal kid. And I think, to be honest, those two things had a really strong tension between them and allowed me to 
really enjoy and push myself to achieve what I wanted to academically and also to achieve what I wanted to on the football field and allowed me to be like quite a a well-rounded 17 and 18 year old, I'd say. I find that fascinating because often when we talk about footballers rising to a level of fame and public interest, but also a level of income so early and so young in life, we're talking about sort of 18, 19, 20, 21, right? But what you're saying, and it makes perfect sense, is that that pressure comes sooner as well. There's pressure from the beginning that's a pressure of expectation and people starting to treat you differently when your athletic ability is so far above that of others. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that whilst my experience as no one pick is vastly different to say players who go in the later rounds of the draft, what you really need to remember is that you're right. These are 18 year old kids or 17 year old kids actually when they're going through the draft um, process. And that 17 year old kid who's playing out in the bush or playing in the suburban parts of Melbourne They're the best player, Mm. most likely in their club, in potentially their club's history. You know, for me, Daniel McStayan, who was a classmate and and teammate of mine as a junior, and I were the first two people ever drafted for my school. So we really do stand out in the, the overall scheme of things. And to your point that they really do start getting treated differently as they approach the draft. And, you know, to put it into context, I always get asked about, you know, pressures on young people and pressures on young players, given my own experience. Like one of the things I try and reiterate to people is when I got offered the second biggest deal in AFL history, the, the seven-year, $7 million contract with the Western Bulldogs, I was 18 years old. Wow. I played five games of AFL footy and I had absolutely no certainty or confidence that I was going to be the player that that deal size would require. I just was offered an incredible um, opportunity and I took it as well as I could with both hands and tried to make sense of it, you know, six months removed from my final school exam. Mm. I imagine both being offered that deal so quickly and being the number one draft pick, both of those moments would have come with, you know, enormous thrill and, you know, recognition for for your abilities and expectation as well. How did kind of that young person's brain manage the sense of expectation? Like, did you even get to enjoy it or was there so much pressure so quickly that it was hard to relax into what you'd achieved? Yeah, I didn't manage it particularly well, to be honest with you. Um, you know, one of the things that I think has become more apparent to me since I retired, I think the real significant byproduct of those two things in particular, and then furthermore, um, the premiership in 2016 was with those three things in my mind, and they were all things that I really wanted to do. You know, I wanted to be paid well, yes. I wanted to be the number one pick. And of course, I wanted to win a premiership. But because my career trajectory was so unique, it made me defensive in some ways, I think, and also really uncomfortable actually accessing support from others because Mm. I just didn't feel that others could understand what I was going through. Yeah. And of course, one of the great lessons that I've learned since finishing football is that whilst I am unique and we are all unique individuals, I suppose the human experience and the emotional roller coaster that is life is, you know, I would say broadly speaking, experienced in a pretty similar way across the board. If only I'd known that earlier, I think I would have been more comfortable accessing support for my mental health in particular, but even more so, I may have been more comfortable accessing you know, more mentorship, whether that be coaching um, in terms of my on-field performance or just understanding life and progressing through it. I'm sure I would have been better off going down that path. Having said that, I learned that lesson once and I learned it the hard way, but thankfully that's a lesson I won't have to learn again. Mm. When you were younger and you were first playing professionally and... Of course, you mentioned that 2016 
grand final where you were just this incredible superstar at such a young age. Boyd took the advantage and played on from inside the centre square. Boyd's kicked the goal. Boyd's kicked the goal from inside the centre How did you feel when you were playing? So, you know, there's the pressure that you feel off the field when you're in your head and you're thinking about it. Were you released from that pressure while you were actually playing or was it still there? Uh, It was still there. Um, You know, I had, I would say relatively normal, but certainly some significant challenges in terms of just getting out of my own head. Mm. Um, It was one of the things actually, interestingly enough, that I worked with my psychologist on before I started accessing a support for my mental health was more around this like performance mindset. How do you stay within the the four walls of your own mind and in the moment that you need to to rely on your instincts as opposed to your you know logical brain, which as it turns out is much slower than your instinctual one. So that was something that I I tried to work on and it was consistently something that I needed to continue to work on. But what I would say is the overwhelming truth of my career is that when things were going really well on the field for me, it was when it felt like as natural as breathing. You know, I was so immersed in the play and the situation of the game and the things that I needed to do that, in fact, there was not much thinking involved. It was much more just going with the flow. When I got to the point where I was critically analyzing every single second of every single game, that's when often that sort of paralysis by analysis would set in and I would find myself making silly errors or overcomplicating things or putting too much expectation or pressure on myself. And that certainly wasn't conducive to a more successful game. You mentioned the kind of psychological support that's given to players to make them better players. And that's very different from psychological support to deal with mental health and make sure that you are mentally healthy and mentally well. And if you are straying into the space of mental illness, to start to treat that and to deal with that. It's a very different type of psychological approach. When was the first time for you that you realised that the support you needed was not to be a better player, but was about you as a human being? Yeah, it's it's tough to pinpoint exactly. I, I mean, the conversations, I would say, really shifted away from the sort of performance mindset, coaching, insight, psychology side of things to much more the um, you know, cognitive therapy side of things, behavioral therapy side of things in the sort of yeah, immediate aftermath in the 2016 grand final in the preseason for the 2017 um, season. And that was when really the regularity with me and, and my psychologist, Lisa, used to catch up. Um, it began sort of being a weekly cadence then as opposed to previously. And a lot of that was really around the fact that what, what I found post-grand final was um, that the sort of precipice fall from doing something that one, no team has ever done in winning from seven, first team in 62 mm. years, seven heartbreaking prelims or whatever the exact number is for the Western Bulldogs and just this sort of once in a lifetime um, you know, opportunity to succeed. Once that sort of ended, the sort of sh- stark and shocking um, shift in my life was eight days removed, shoulder reconstruction, two weeks after that, mm. an ankle clean out, all of a sudden in a sling, on a crutch for the, the large majority of the off-season, haven't run before getting back for the preseason, feeling like I'm slipping behind. And I just remember this overwhelming sense of dread um, coming over me about just looking ahead at this enormous mountain that we needed to climb understanding all of its sort of treacherous points and the challenges associated with it. And to be honest, just understanding how big a journey it is to get to that grand final and realizing that, you know, that was just overwhelming and, you know, filled and riddled with anxiety. So 
I think that's when things really started to shift towards that conversation. And um, pretty much from that point on, my you know connection with Lisa was about managing A, my mental state, and that sort of permeated all the way through my, till the end of my career. But two, around you know, finding a way to live life and play football, which hadn't been something that I'd been doing leading up to pretty much my, my worst period of time in 2017, where I really hadn't slept in a couple of weeks. And to hark back to the initial point around what I was most successful at in my life really was when I had a tension between two things that I was really passionate about, being my sport and my school. And given the sort of all-consuming nature of the AFL profession and the, the career, I found myself losing all of that sort of balance that I'd had in my life and, and being able to achieve things in more than just kick smarts and handballs on a weekend. That idea of taking, I know you were 18, but like a kid, right? Taking a kid and saying, this is not going to be part of your life. This is not going to be even a big part or even a dominating part of your life. This is your life. Like this is the one thing you are expected to focus on to the detriment of everything else is an enormous ask of someone who hasn't had a lot of life to figure out who they want to be and what they want to do yet. Did you think you had a sense of the kind of human being you wanted to be when you were playing or was it all about the kind of player you wanted to be? Yeah, I think there's two parts uh, to that question. And and the first is that my parents were incredibly influential in my life. My mum's Danish and sort of comes from the Scandinavian properness and politeness that um, is well documented in that part of the world. Uh, and so my impression of what I needed to do as a person was, you know, it was all the, you know, mind your manners, be polite, be articulate, mm. tried school, all of those sorts of things. And unfortunately, what I found was the huge disconnection that I never reconciled during the course of my career was that that stuff just didn't matter at the AFL level. Yes, being kind to people is important. Yes, being professional, caring for your teammates, leadership, all that sort of stuff is important. But at the end of the day, the, the nuts and bolts of it is, you don't get enough kicks on the weekend. It just doesn't have enough influence. So that was a significant issue that I needed to contend with. The other one was that when you look at AFL players and they, you know, I finished the game at 23 on my own terms. I'm really lucky to have earned a lot of money during my career, to have had some team success and some individual success, and also to walk out with the choice of doing what I want to do. But in many ways, when I first finished in uh, 2019, that was the first time in my life that I hadn't been told exactly where to be and what to do. It's not too dissimilar from school in some senses. Obviously, there's a bit more autonomy. You're getting paid to be there. There's much more public facing. There's, there are discrepancies. But in terms of the sort of individual accountability, mm. your life is basically set and planned for you. And so when I walked into the, the GWS Giants for the first time, my concept of what I wanted to do was I wanted to study electrical engineering in my first year and play football. And I was quickly told that that was a mistake, that it was going to be too difficult to study and do that. But what I actually found was that later in my career, once I picked my studies back up, was that I felt way better about my football because I could go and attribute some of my energy and sort of my, let's say, you know, intuition and, and intelligence to a different part of my life that didn't have the same scorecard as kicks, marks and handballs. Mm. It had the general merit-based, did you do the work? Was it good? Here's your mark. Um, and I found that balance to be incredibly important and it certainly provided me, I think, a really integral segue from my end of career to my post-career life. And I recently spoke to, to Chris Anstey, actually, for the first time. He's kind of a childhood hero of mine. He was a basketballer for the Melbourne Tigers for a long time. And he said, sport is the only career that when you finish at 30, you have to tell everyone that you've retired. Yeah. yeah. Because we haven't retired. No. We've just changed careers. Yeah. And for me, that was a 
was a great sort of simple recognition of what I'd been trying to work out in my mind. And one thing that I think that most footballers really have to contend with when they do retire from football. Yeah, well, I think the data shows that millennial generation are going to have six or seven different careers and that Gen Z will have even more. No one's saying I've retired from advertising, now I'm a graphic designer, right? You've yeah. you just got a new job. Tell me about the sort of intersection that came with enormous success, pressure and scrutiny on the one side, and then started to give way for you into a cycle of mental illness that made things just unbearable for you? Yeah. So if I was best to characterize it, I think basically the the course of events that happened to me in my life was that at the end of 2013, I finished school. I had very little understanding about mental illness, mental health. It wasn't a topic of conversation other than I would say the sort of resemblance of the really, really affected individual that needed an aid worker at school that was mentally ill on the street, you know, the sort of really sort of high-end, severe cases. Yeah. There was no conversation around the large, um, you know, sort of swath of the population who are going through their own challenges at different stages. The fact that we all have mental health, all of these things that we sort of commonly talk about now. So when I first started experiencing issues with sleep and what I would have called at the time agitation or nervousness in my first year at the Giants, I just was like, I don't know what this is. And I was told essentially, Tom, it's just homesickness. Give it some time. It'll go away. Now, of course, that wasn't the case. Sure. Then I go through the next two years of my career where my on-field performances actually continue to go up and up and the team performances continue to improve. And of course, we end up at the end of 2016 in this wonderful moment of success. But Meanwhile, my issues off the field are continuing to sort of, I would say, go up and down, but certainly trending in a downhill direction. And, and in particular, the biggest one was around sleep where, you know, often I would go into games of football having not slept for a night at a time, two nights at a time. Wow. You play a night game at Eddie Hat under the bright lights or marble as it's known now. And the adrenaline and the nerves and the attention and the just sheer amount of strain you put your body under makes it very difficult typically for players to sleep post-game. So now I'm three days removed from sleep. I've trained a 10-kilometer session on the Thursday. I've done a three- or four-kilometer session on the Friday to get ready for the game, and I've run 14 kilometers in the game on Saturday night, and I haven't slept at all. And in the wake of poor individual performances and, and team losses, that's when I started to have the real first brushes with the depression that sort of plagued me for the better course of a couple of years, I would say. And finally, that sort of continued to exacerbate to a degree, was really covered up by the fact that towards the end of 2016, we just had so many things going our way. We had, you know, the positivity of, you know, almost 100,000 people cheering us on to win the premiership. We were the first team to come from seven, so four-week run of pure joy and momentum and the whole country getting behind us to win. And in many ways, that covered up a lot of the issues that I was having because it turns out if everyone's cheering your name and patting you on the back, you feel pretty good for a while. (laughs) But... Unfortunately, you know, the, the balance does come due and those issues I've been putting off for 2014, 15, 16, eventually did present themselves in 2017 and continued to get worse and worse until the point where I basically hadn't slept in two weeks and I was still oh. playing football at the top level. And as a really important note, when I decided to take leave from the game to get on top of the sleep issues primarily, but certainly the other issues that were a part of that, uh, that overall scheme of things that were going on in my life, it was a really integral point where I needed people to know that I wasn't taking time off because I was sad or I was feeling sorry for myself or I just wasn't playing good footy so I wanted to take time off. 
my body had literally begun to break down based on injury or, you know, um, fatigue or sleep issues. I was getting sick all the time. And all of this was permeating for my mental health being in such a bad place that I just physically couldn't do the job that I'd or play the sport that I've been playing since I was, you know, five or six years old. And I think that's where I realized that the approaches I've been taking, which was to focus on getting the outcome on the field as being the core driver of my emotions off the field was the complete reverse of what I needed to do, which was get the life that I needed to do, which would help me mentally perform at my best, which would help me play better, which would help me feel better. But I couldn't start at the end and then work with my way back. I had to start at the beginning and really sort of build myself up. I want to ask about how the AFL handled your decision to retire, in inverted commas, (laughs) uh, from the game earlier than perhaps others would have expected. I don't want to ask you to have to reflect on your own club, but do you think the AFL as a whole handles the mental health of its young players well and how could it perhaps do better? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the AFL uh, is taking significant steps in the right direction. It certainly changed from the course of my career when I started to when I finished, um, particularly around the sort of, I would say, overall cultural conversation that's happening with regards to mental health in, in football. And, you know, I think it's important for people to recognize that whilst the sort of policy level style um, or policy level components of the mental health sort of infrastructure is dictated by the AFL and, and sort of backed up and propped up by the AFLPA or the union, the actual execution of that is still implemented at club level. And I'm sure there are discrepancies from club to club in terms of how sure. um, they deal with it. My, my sense is that there is one lever that won't get pulled that could be really an interesting one. And I think that's raising the draft age by a year. Now, I'm not here to tell 18-year-olds they can't play AFL footy, nor am I here to tell the AFL to do exactly that. But my sense is that if you can allow players to become people for a year, between their schooling and their career starting, I think that is only going to be conducive to success because what it does in my mind is that, one, it um, forces accountability back on the players to build their life in that sort of take uh, gap here, if you will. And what building their life looks like is working out how are they going to keep themselves fit, how they're going to keep themselves healthy, how they're going to keep themselves focused, and what are they going to do with their time? Are they going to go to university? Are they going to start a trade? Are they going to start the process of life that begins for many players the day after they finish their AFL career? And for me, there is a distinct percentage of AFL players who leave the game, and I don't know what the number is, that is genuinely worse off than they would have been if they hadn't played AFL football at all. Now, I'm not asking people to be sympathetic for all AFL footballers more than you are sympathetic for the average person, quote unquote. But it is an interesting topic for me, having been someone who's gone through the league and now found themselves on his feet post-career to see many of my ex-teammates or ex-colleagues, if you will, from the broader scheme of things, struggling greatly to find what life looks like post-footy for them. And it concerns me greatly because it feels like to me that they're some of the most at-risk people that the AFL uh, churns out. That is a fascinating reflection. We are fast running out of time, Tom, so I want to leave you with one last question. Your beautiful memoir has been released, Nowhere to Hide, and I really recommend it to people. It is such an insightful 
piece of work that looks at the stigma around mental health and the importance of looking after the people in our own networks and making sure that you know how they really are, not how perhaps they're answering that question of how are you flippantly at the start of a chat. You've spent some time away from footy now, Tom, and you've been writing and you've gone on to a new career in public speaking and other things. Have you ever had regrets? Has regret creeped in at any point? Um, no, no, it hasn't. I mean, there was probably one very brief moment finishing my career. And by the way, thank you very much for the kind words about the book. It was a hell of a journey. I'm glad that it's <laughs> out there now. Um, I remember um, I retired on a, uh, I think I first made the decision on a Tuesday afternoon and I was about to walk into a lecture for, I don't know, entrepreneurship or something they can't teach you. Um, and, uh, and I was more excited to walk into that lecture than I had been to walk into the footy club for a long time. And I realized in that moment that, you know, this question that I've been asking myself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? I'd finally realized that the answer to that question now was no. And the next two weeks were absolute bliss because I was like, I put my feet up and, you know, I'm watching the, the boys get absolutely smashed over in Perth or Adelaide perhaps. And I'm sitting at home relaxing with my feet up thinking, this is pretty good. And then as it always does, my life basically, or my mind told me, what are you going to do with your life? And I think in that moment, there was a very nice amount of fear and uncertainty, which really spurred on the next stage of my life and what I was going to do and really forced me into action around, you know, my North Star is that I want to work in the, let's say, positive movement surrounding mental health. I want to make an impact to people in a number of different ways, whether that be at the community level, whether that be through, as you mentioned, public speaking, whether that be through catching up with people one-on-one in a very sort of casual perspective, whether that be openly talking about the topic, writing a book, or actually working with businesses on improving. And I didn't know how I was going to do any of it. So I had to start working that out slowly but surely. I have over time, but it becomes very, very apparent to me almost every single day when I get up in the morning, I get to choose the things that I'm doing. I've chosen to be in the careers that I want to be in. I've chosen to make the impact that I want to, I want to have. And that all leads itself to the fact that that wasn't something that I had playing football. And that was not something that sat particularly well with me. And I feel like I've been made, able to make far more of an impact outside of the game now than I possibly could have whilst I was still in it. And for that reason, um, no, I don't have any regrets from retiring from my AFL career. Tom, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thanks for having me. That's it for my conversation with Tom Boyd. His memoir is called Nowhere to Hide and it's available at all good bookstores as well as online via Booktopia. And if that conversation made you a bit uncomfortable or brought up some stuff that you need to work through, then please remember that you can always reach out for help. You can talk to Lifeline on 13 11 14. Griefline is 1300 845 745. Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. And of course, you can also reach out to Men's Line Australia on 1300 789 978. Don't go away though, because the weekend list is coming up and we're going to recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. It is weekend list time and thankfully Bron is here and she's going to have the goods, folks. She's got the goods for what you're all going to get up to this weekend. Bron, what would you like to recommend? So my first recommendation is Donna Hay Christmas on Disney+. Plus. It's a four-part series kind of showing all her best Christmas recipes. It is literally just straight-up food porn. It is shot so beautifully. Everything looks delicious. Donna Hay is just amazing. I'm a big fan. 
even if you don't celebrate Christmas, it's just got good tips for like feeding a big crowd. If you're having a dinner party, things you can prepare the night before. She makes everything kind of look super simple and effective. And some of the recipes do look a little advanced for me, but there's a good mix for everybody. Oh, that sounds so good. And I feel like every year in the month or so leading up to Christmas, I go, oh my gosh, how can we be even remotely original this Christmas? Mm -hmm. And I like that someone's done the work for us. Thanks, Donna Hay. Bron, I want to recommend a clothing line, which is not something I usually recommend on the weekend briefing, but occasionally... I have a suggestion for you, folks. I want to recommend a collaboration between Witchery and Kit X. So they've created a capsule collection together, which is called Towards a Sustainable Future. I don't know much else about it, except it's really cute, everyone. Uh, I am guessing the Towards a Sustainable Future bit means that they have done the right thing when it comes to the environmental impact of what they have created. And that is excellent. But for me, I am into it for the clothes, which are beautiful. Like the silhouettes are gorgeous and super flattering. There's a whole lot of like unexpected cutouts, but not in ridiculous places where no one will wear them, which seems to have been the trend of the last couple of years for um, a lot of clothing. There's a whole bunch of pieces that are for sale as part of that collection. And the reason I'm particularly into it is that I really love Kid X clothes, but I can never justify buying them because they're extraordinarily expensive. And now they're cheap. Yeah. Which is a win. That is a big win. I know what you mean about the cutouts. They are, have been so annoying the last few seasons. Everything. Enough. Stop cutting things out. Just leave Let it. Let me have a real top. <laughs> My next recommendation is the Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales that are coming up next week. So mark your calendar, Ooh. Friday the 25th of November for the Black Friday sales, Monday 28th for the Cyber Monday sales you can pretty much guarantee almost every single store is going to have a discount going. So put a little reminder in, get a list of things together that you want before the end of the year. And yeah, every every year I feel like I miss it and I buy things like a few days before things go on sale. So just keep it in mind, if you do have things that you want to buy, they might be on sale soon. Ooh. Uh, I love a recommendation where I'm going to save money. Two in a row, in fact, Bron. I am now not going to save you any money, folks. I, however, I'm going to suggest where you can spend that money. Last night I went and saw The Phantom of the Opera at the State Theatre in Melbourne. Uh, it's been running in Sydney previously and I believe they're heading all over the country in the coming months. So there's a chance for all of you to see it. Obviously, The Phantom of the Opera is is one of those classic musicals composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber and brought to life by Cameron McIntosh in this in this production. It is beautiful. It is so beautiful. I remembered why I loved this musical as a kid. The songs are exquisite. The lyrics are exquisite. It is fun and exciting and spooky and scary. I think coming to this particular story line, which is, of course, is about a man who lives in the catacombs beneath the Paris Opera House, who is a disabled man with facial difference. The treatment of him in a musical and a story that were written many, many years ago will raise a few questions for you. But I think the way that this cast has brought it to life, they have tried to take an old story and make it sensitive to modern sensibilities. And if anything, I think it will make you start to have a think about the kind of narratives that exist around people with disabilities. And at the same time, you get to enjoy the the spectacular of a show that is just completely immersive and shocking and surprising and romantic and gorgeous. 
that's it for the weekend briefing. It was so nice to have your company today. Thank you for being with us. If you want to be with us every weekend, we're here. We're here to hang out. We're always available. The best way to hang out with us on the regular is to head to the listener app, download that, and you can follow us there and you will get the briefing on weekdays and on the weekend just jumping into your feed. If you listen to your podcast somewhere else, then you can follow or subscribe there. You can also leave us a rating and a review, which would absolutely make our day. The briefing will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.